All right. Well, again, good morning. Good to see everybody. Um, we are continuing this morning in our series uh, on the Apostles' Creed called We Believe. And uh, the title of this morning's sermon is Jesus the Judge. And so just to start considering uh, this line in the creed uh, that talks about Jesus as a judge, um, just want to think a little bit uh, maybe about how we get to that point uh, in the story of Scripture. And so I, my guess is if you were to ask any first grader, for example, uh, what are the three key parts uh, of a story? They could probably get that question right. They would be able to say, well, there's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. They would be able to understand. Kids would get that. And I think it just speaks to the fact that uh, there's something intrinsic, something deep within us that understands the world around us through story. We kind of make sense of reality in terms of story. So you can think about your own life, the beginning, the middle, the end. You can think about human history in terms of story, the past, the present, and the future. And so whether uh, we're conscious of it or not, we, we think and we, we live uh, through this idea of story, of narrative. <clears throat> and in all stories, uh, the ending matters. The ending of the story matters. A story isn't a story, in other words, if it doesn't actually have an ending. So think about how much we actually need resolution, like in the stories of our lives. It's interesting. Netflix has capitalized on this deep longing, right? That's why we binge watch, because we get to the end, but we, we want more. Is there more? Can I watch more? And so we go more and more and more. So we're, we're left asking questions. Wow, you know, will, will Ted find love again? Right? We're asking, is Nate the Great going to make it as a coach? You know, we're asking these questions, and, and Netflix knows that. So it's this, this sense within us that we need to know what's next. How does the story end? And that's true whether it's, you know, uh, in, in our lives, uh, what's coming next, what's in our future. Uh, we sense that in relationships. It's the whole idea of closure. Um, it's, it's what funerals are about in some way. It, it's recognizing there was an end, an end to a story. And so stories are important in our lives, and they need endings. By the way, if you don't know who Nate the Great is or who Ted is, just ask one of your neighbors. They'll, they'll enlighten you. Um, so you know, we need endings to these stories, and not just for their own sake, uh, because I think there's a powerful truth here when it comes to story and to endings. Uh, and this is it. The powerful truth is this. Our vision of the future shapes our lives in the present. So it's not just something out there, it's actually something that's pressing in here, in this moment. The future, our future, shapes our lives in the present. And so this is why every view of the world, whether it's a secular or religious one, actually wrestles with this question about how will things end? How are things going to end? Because the future shapes the present. So as followers of Jesus... The question for us then this morning is, what, what is our vision of the future? What is our vision of the future? What is the Christian answer to how will things end? And the Apostles' Creed, again, which we've been using as an outline for the essential doctrines of the Christian faith as revealed in God's Word, it points us to the answer to that question, how things will end. It summarizes what the Bible teaching teaches in this statement. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Or if you're old school, he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. 
the living and the dead, all will come under the judgment of Jesus. So for Christians, this is how the story ends. This is the vision of the future that's pressing in on our present. Jesus will come again, and when he comes, he will come as judge. So a lot could be said about that. There, there are books and books written about the return of Jesus, uh, which is why I highly recommend some of the resources that we've got in the lobby, or if you go on the website under the sermon resource page, there's more that you can read and study and get into scripture around this question of when Jesus comes back, what should we expect and how do we prepare? But this morning, I want to, I want to consider two questions, two questions together. The first is, what does this mean? What does this statement mean? That Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And then in light of what it means, how does this vision of the future shape our present, how we live in the present, how we live today? So what does it mean and how does it shape our present? So first, what does it mean? I invite you to open up to Matthew 25, those verses I just read. There's uh, hopefully a Bible near you and a seat back near you if you need to grab one. You can open up to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to look at this passage together to try and understand the statement in the creed. But first, just a, a couple of preliminaries that I think are important to help us understand what the creed means and what Jesus, uh, more importantly, is saying here in Matthew 25. And so first preliminary to kind of understand the end as the creed and as Scripture declare it, I would say is this. We have to understand that the Bible is story. The Bible is a story. It's one story. Many books, many authors over many years, but in a very true and real way, one story. The Bible is one story. And what is it a story about? It's a story about God, first and foremost, but it's also about God and his relationship to humanity with us. That's what's being unfolded, that God's interaction, his dealings with, his relations to his created reality, the world, and specifically human beings. That's the story. And as every story does, it has a plot. There's a lot of different ways you can kind of summarize the plot of the Bible. But I think one of the best ones uh, is a four-act plot. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So if you're trying to get your head around what is the story of the Bible, this is a great place to start. It's a great thing to hold in your head. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So real quick, act one, creation. Creation is we were made by God for life with God. That's creation. That's act one. Act two, so that gets you Genesis one and two, right? That's act one. Act two, the fall. We rejected God. Our relationship with him was broken, and we were dead in our sin. That's act two. Act three, redemption. God in his love from that moment forward, right, began to pursue us. Uh, He's been pursuing us ever since the fall, and ultimately, through the sending of his son, he has saved us and redeemed us from sin and death. It is by grace, through faith in his son, that we are saved. That's redemption. And then act four is consummation or completion. Uh, In the end, ultimately, one day, God will renew all things. He will make a new heavens and a new earth where there's no more suffering, there's no more sin, there's no more death, and we will know life with God 
in his eternal kingdom. That's consummation. So that's the four-act play, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The Bible is a story, and if we understand that story, it helps us to encounter God and to know God, and it also helps us to know who we are and how to live uh, in this world. And we have to understand the whole story. It's very important that we understand the whole story. And so God has revealed that to us, to bless us, to encourage us, to help us know him and know who we are and how to live. And the ending of that story is very important. So it's we need to understand when Jesus speaks Matthew 25, he's speaking into that story, into that four-act story. So first uh, kind of pre-consideration is that the Bible is a story, and the second one is like it, that the gospel is a story. The gospel itself is a story. I like how Al Mohler describes it in his book on the creed. Uh, he says the gospel has a past, a present, and a future reality. Past, present, and future reality. So again, if you want to hold this in your head when you're thinking about, man, what is the gospel and how, how do I live the gospel? How do I share the gospel? Here's, a, here's just kind of a little handle that you could grab onto. Past, we were created for life with God but rebelled against God. So God in his love for us sent Jesus, his son, to rescue and redeem us. Right? So that's the past. That's what God has done. Present, we now live in response to what God has done for us in Jesus by the power of his spirit who dwells in us. So that's the present. And then future, we wait with hope for Jesus, who we talked about last week, has ascended and sits on the right hand of God. We wait in hope for our king to return when he will fulfill all of God's promises and, as N.T. Wright says, he will set the world to rights. Right? So that's the future. So past, present, and future. That's the story of the gospel. And again, holding that before us and understanding where the ending enters in, I think is what is the most important thing I want you to take from that. So understanding the biblical and the gospel story is important because it gives us perspective on the end itself and how to live in light of it. Does that, all that make sense? Okay, because I know that was a lot to even get to the first point. Okay, so here we go. So listen now as we're talking about what is the end, this is what Jesus himself says in Matthew 25. And I think that's very important. This is what Jesus says when it comes to Matthew 25 through verse 31. Hey. Um, so this is what Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and the Son of Man, that's, that's himself, that's Jesus. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne all the nations, that's all the people. So I don't think countries think, the Greek there is ethne. It's all the peoples of the earth. So it's all people will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as shepherds, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay. So how does it end? This is Jesus' two-sentence summary of how this ends. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to come again. So he's come once, and now he's going to come again. And when I come, he says, the next time, it will not be like it was the last time. Very clear. It's going to be very different. The first time Jesus came as Savior and Redeemer, and he is still Savior and Redeemer, but when he returns to bring heaven to earth, his second coming, it will be, he says, in glory. It will be in glory as king and judge, he will judge. He's very clear 
that he will come as the judge. Now, here's, here's the truth. We as modern Christians, we don't like to talk about the judgment of God. It makes us very uncomfortable. In fact, I would say many Christians uh, are even embarrassed at the notion of God's judgment, um, even offended by it, potentially. I've heard Christian friends of mine say that, um, you know, that can't be how God is because God is love. God can't judge. God is love. And therefore, if that's the God that you're talking about, I don't want anything to do with a God who judges. I don't know if you've ever heard anything along those lines. Just a rejection of a God who judges. And I would say, you know, maybe, maybe you're feeling that way right now. Or you just have a tinge of that somewhere within you if you're totally honest. This whole idea of God as judge makes you uncomfortable. Now, I think there are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of different reasons we feel that. But here's what I think needs to be said, whatever the reason may be. The bottom line is if you reject this idea that God is our rightful and perfect judge, If if you reject the idea of God's judgment, what you've got is a huge problem with Jesus. Huge problem with Jesus. Not with me, not with other people you disagree with, but with Jesus. You are are talking about disagreeing with Jesus because remember, Matthew 25, 31, 32, this is Jesus speaking, and he calls himself the judge. He is talking about, just to make it totally clear, judgment, and he's talking about hell. That's what's going on as the unfolds in Matthew chapter 25. In fact, the entire chapter of Matthew 25 is an extended teaching, and I encourage you to go read it for yourself, an extended teaching on judgment by Jesus. Dale Bruner in his commentary points out that of the hundred, nearly 150 distinct teaching, the, per, the pericopes, the little collections, little chunks of teaching, out of the almost 150 in Matthew, at least 60 of them deal in some way with the judgment of God and or the final judgment day. That's almost half of what Jesus says touches on this in one way or another. The Bible talks about judgment and the judgment of God a lot. And we just need to come to terms with that. And it's not just in the Old Testament. Sometimes we, we, maybe you've heard that, oh, well, that's the God of the Old Testament, and I'm all about the God of the New Testament. I'm all about Jesus Old Testament is God of wrath and a God of judgment. New Testament is all about Jesus, and he's love, and he's grace. But again, that's not not the testimony of Scripture. The Bible is clear and consistent, and while there are points of tension, there is no contradiction. His love and judgment are both aspects of his holiness and inseparable from his character. Old Testament God, New Testament God, same God. So there's no getting around, in other words, the judgment of God. We have to deal with this head on if we're going to follow Jesus. You can't just pick parts of Jesus based on what you like or don't like. And we do ourselves and others great harm by leaving out the judgment of God or downplaying the judgment of God. In fact, to do so, I would say, ultimately, is to gut the gospel. So think about it this way. Without judgment... Our view of God's holiness is diminished. 
Sin is diminished or almost completely goes away. The need for grace goes away. The power of the cross goes away. And so does any hope of our redemption and our healing as those who are broken sinners. You pull that thread of judgment and the whole thing unravels. And so the bottom line is if there's no judgment, there's no Jesus. At least not the Jesus of the Bible. So it's all or nothing. And so I just want to encourage you, if that's something you're wrestling with, you are in good company. It's not an easy thing to deal with. But I want to encourage you to seek the Lord. Seek him through his word. Ask his spirit to help you rightly understand Jesus and all that he is. And that includes as your savior, as your Lord, and as your judge. So, Turn back to Matthew 25. What does Jesus actually tell us about himself as the judge? Notice that he uses the word glory twice in just this, uh, this one or two sentences. It's almost as if he wants you to not miss the fact that when he comes, he's coming in glory. You want glory? You got glory. I got plenty of glory. Second coming, pay attention, glory. Okay, so that just so we don't miss that, glory when Jesus comes. What does that mean? He's coming in glory. It means he's going to come in a way that it's going to be absolutely clear who he is. It's going to be fully revealed that he is the second member of the Trinity. He is the Son of God. He is the King over creation. He is our Christ, our Redeemer, and he is our judge. It will be absolutely clear. So no baby, right, in a manger, that's how he revealed himself the first time, not in the cover of darkness, in an obscure town, right, in ancient Palestine. Not this time. When he comes, how's he coming? On the clouds, in glory. Who's with him? The angelic host, right? So it is going to be obvious that the risen, perfected, in body, incarnated, you'll be able to see Jesus. He will come, and everyone's going to see him. Everyone is going to see him. Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. That doesn't mean that every, every person will believe in Jesus, but everyone will acknowledge Jesus. And that's what's going to happen when he returns. No one, in other words, will wonder, wait, did something just happen? Right? No one's going to be like, wait, who's that guy? Right? It's going to be clear. In glory, everyone will see and everyone will know. They will know this is the end and this is the judge who has come. So that's what it means that he's come in glory. We will see him as he is, and there'll be no question. And the judge will sit on his throne, we're told. The whole heavenly world will be present at that moment. All the angelic hosts will be present, but also every nation, every nation. Again, all, all the people, uh, living and dead, as the creed says, will stand before the judge. It will be the the gathering to end all gathering. It's hard to get your head around. I was watching game six of the NBA finals this week, and they kept, every time they went to commercial, I don't know if you saw this, they would pan outside of the arena, and they kept saying, there's like 60,000 people here. It's like one of the biggest crowds we've ever seen. You know, Milwaukee downtown's packed. You know, and it was, it was packed. It was amazing, 60,000. It was hard to see the end of the crowd, just innumerable. Nothing, that's nothing, right, compared to what's being described here. Billions and billions and billions of people and angels gathered around. That's the vision of Isaiah, right? It's this glorious vision gathered around the throne of God. Everyone will be there. 
every living thing will come before Jesus, heavenly and earthly, and they will come before his throne. And all of heaven, all the nations will be there, and it will be a staggering sight. And he will sit on his throne, and what will he do? He will judge in that moment. He will judge. What does that mean? Jesus tells us exactly what that means. He says he will separate. He will separate on his right and his left. He will separate as a shepherd, right? Separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to judge. And notice that this is not just a grouping judgment. This is each person, sheep, goat, sheep, goat. I don't know how that's going to work. Billions and billions will come before the judge. And it's a very personal and individual experience. It's not just some blanket group effect. Right? This is a very personal moment where we will stand as individuals and be examined by our king and by our savior and by our judge. <clears throat> there will be an individual examination. It will be a parsing. C.S. Lewis called it the great divorce, the separating, right? The parsing. This is the end and the time for human decision is over. Here the decision will be made by one and one only by the judge and he will determine people's destiny forever. Later in Matthew 25, Jesus makes clear how he will judge us. How will he judge us? How will he separate? To those who have been faithful to him, those who have said yes to Jesus as Savior and sought to live in loving and faithful obedience to him as Lord, Jesus will say these words, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, your destiny. To those who have not, to those who have said no to Jesus, in other words, those who have said, I do not believe and I choose to live life without you, both now and for eternity, Jesus will say, depart from me. You who are cursed and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the judgment of the perfect judge of Jesus and that's hard to hear, right? In our day, even faithful Christians, again, are reluctant to talk about hell. But the Bible and Jesus himself are clear, hell is very real, and it is a destiny that awaits all who reject Jesus as Savior and Lord. We ought never to speak of that glibly, or as though we ourselves don't deserve that destiny. Romans 3.23 says, All have fallen short of God's standard and that we all need his forgiveness. We all need his grace. But it, to try to do away with hell, again, is to make light of sin and ultimately to make light of God's holiness. When we grasp just how good and holy and perfect God is, it brings to light how terrible uh, sin is, what it is as a rejection of and a rebellion against God. It is worse. Like whatever you imagine sin to be, it's worse. That's what the judgment tells us. It is worse. The cross tells us it is worse 
than what you can imagine. We deserve hell, eternal torment apart from God. That is what we deserve. And yet God in his mercy, in his mercy full of compassion, sent his one and only son to die the death that we deserve so that we don't have to face hell and the consequences of our sin. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And so when we encounter this, it ought to make us uncomfortable. If you don't feel uncomfortable about this, there's something wrong in your heart when you read about this moment. There is a sense in which it ought to humble us, move us to gratitude, and break our hearts. All those things. We can praise God and have our hearts broken in the same moment. Humbled and grateful for what God has done for us in Christ and heartbroken for those who do not know him. But when Jesus judges, he will judge on the basis of our faith in him. A faith not based simply on words, but on a faithful life. Not a perfect life. This is not about earning anything, but a life lived in loving devotion to him. That's how we'll come before the judge. So Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. So having looked at that and what that means, how does this vision of the future shape how we live today? That's our second question. How does this vision of the future that Jesus will come and judge shape our life today? Quickly, three things I think it means. First, it means we live in anticipation of God's judgment. When I say anticipation, I mean we look forward to it. Now that may sound a little uh, dissonant. But only if we don't fully understand the judgment of God, because the judgment of God is a good thing. We want a God who judges, right? We want judgment because we want justice, true justice. God's perfect judgment is an act of love. It's an act of love. It's God's right response to sin and evil in the world and in us. As one Christian author said, we as human beings, we, we try for justice, uh, we're called to, to try for justice. We're to be witnesses of God's justice. But human justice cannot make things truly right. This author goes on to say, we can't bring perfect justice in the world. Perfect justice would not only punish the wrong, but restore what was lost. Perfect justice renders judgment on the murderer and restores life to the murdered. That's perfect justice. Perfect justice brings hope to the hopeless. That's God's perfect justice. It restores completely and fully. And each of us in our life and in this world, we know the pain of sin in our lives. We know the pain that we have inflicted on others and those we love. And every single moment of pain in our life reminds us because that pain cries out for the need of judgment and the arrival of God's justice, true justice, to set things right. Think of the restorative justice, the restorative work of God's judgment. It is God's act of fully bringing into the light all that's been hidden. It is a way of cleansing us once and for all. It's him declaring that he loves you, that he loves us and accepts us for eternity because we are covered by the blood of the lamb. After the final judgment, think about this. There will be no need for confession. There will be no need for repentance. No need for forgiveness because there will be no more sin. We will be free of sin forever. No need for any of those things. No need to hide from God. God's righteous justice, it's a way of burning away once and for all sin 
And we are brought into the completion of our salvation by what Christ has done for us. Through the work of the risen, ascended judge, we will finally be made whole, healed, free, and at peace. And so we long, we anticipate the judgment. So that's the first thing. We prepare to stand before Jesus. That's the second. What does it mean in the present? To live in light of our future, we prepare to stand before Jesus. On, on that day that's being described here, you'll, you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. Everyone will be there. One day we will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be evaluated. Not on what we deserve, not on what we've done. Let me say that again. Not on what we've done, but on the life we have lived in loving devotion to him by the power of his spirit and under his grace. The only way we will be able to stand face to face with Jesus on that day and under his judgment and not receive the condemnation we are justly due for eternity is because of the loving sacrifice of Jesus, the lover of our soul and the righteous judge of our hearts. We love him. That's what he's gonna judge, our love for him, our hearts. And how do we love him? What scripture say? We love him because he first loved us. You see, it's, that's how this works. And when you stand before Jesus, he's gonna look at your heart. That's what he's looking at. And in a minute, a second, a split second, he won't have to interrogate you. Right? He won't ask you questions. There's no pretense. He's not gonna ask for any reasons or explanations. He will see in an instant your life and your heart. And what will he look to see? This is what Jesus said he's looking for. When he was asked, what, is it, what does it really come down to, Jesus? This is what he said. He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And you should love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he's looking at in your heart, in your life. When the judgment day comes, our lives will be evaluated on that basis. And so we need to prepare. And how do we prepare? It's this simple. We love the Lord God with all that we are, and we love our neighbor as ourself. Easy to say, hard to do. Right? But that's what God's gonna be looking at in our hearts. So we prepare, number two. And number three, we live with urgency for those who don't know Jesus. I mean, think about this moment. Who do you want to be there and to hear their Savior and their King and their Judge say, you are blessed. You are blessed and welcome into the kingdom. We want everyone to be there. God wants everyone to be there. His desire is that all should be saved. That's what scripture says. At the same time, he will not violate our choice. If we reject him, he will allow us to reject him. But that rejection has consequences, both for today and for eternity. We know the joy and the peace and the hope that comes from Christ. If you know Jesus, you know that now, and you will know it fully in the future. But we want others to know that joy and that peace and that hope. We want them to know it now, today, and in the future for eternity. I hope not just for this life, but forever. Who will stand that day on the left and the right? That's not up to us, just to be clear. That is not up to us, but Jesus has given us a commission. 
to proclaim the gospel, the good news of his kingdom. We have news worth sharing, and it makes, uh, makes a difference to the world both now and forever, this message that we have. And so I just want to encourage you, who are you praying for? Who in your life that doesn't know Christ, who are you praying for? Write down their name. Put it on a post-it. Put it in your journal. Write it on your hand. Write it down and pray with the end in mind, with the judgment seat of Christ in mind. Pray for them. Let your heart break for them. How are you loving those who God has placed in your life? Do you care for them enough to talk to them about Jesus? Not just to be a nice person. Be a nice person, but talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about him and who he is and what he's done for you. Talk to them about the past and the present and the future of the gospel. Let the Spirit prompt you to boldness. Are you discipling others? Are you helping them learn to love and follow Jesus? People around you need Jesus, not just better lives, but for their eternal destiny. We have the joy and the privilege of inviting them to know Jesus, the Savior and King, so that one day they will stand before Jesus, the judge, and they will be welcomed into his kingdom. We have that gift, that privilege. So we need to live in light of that. So just those are three uh, ways I think we can think uh, about the implications. We can anticipate God's judgment. We can stand before Jesus and prepare, prepare to stand before Jesus. And then finally, we can allow the urgency to move our hearts to share Jesus with others. Just in conclusion, Jesus is going to come again. He is going to come again, and he will judge the living and the dead. That is the end of the world and the beginning of a new age, an age we long for, we were made for, that we're preparing for, and it's the gospel we proclaim. And so it's the glorious future that we look forward to, the judgment of God, and it should shape how we live in this moment today as the people of God. Amen? Amen. Amen.